Questions on Genesis 16? Questions on Genesis 16? Yes? So, so there's a lot of people that are uh, often confused about uh, slavery in the Bible and slavery even today. Um, can you speak a little bit about, um, about slavery in the Bible and how it was justified and things like that? Yes. Uh, slavery. Slavery in the Bible. Uh, how it is justified in the Bible, since there's a lot of controversy today. Um, while you're finding your way to Ephesians, would you find your way to Ephesians? Um, the, it's interesting that those who disdain and criticize the Bible the most, and the most severely, the most uncritically and harshly, they are the ones who support positions in our culture that enslave people. The ones who speak against slavery as an institution are the ones who implement slavery by their policies. They enslave people by their policies. So they are big hypocrites. Now the real question is, what does the Bible teach? And the Bible does not explicitly or implicitly say that slavery as an institution is evil or wrong. It does not do that. It does speak to abuses of it, just like it, it speaks to the abuses of marriage, abuses of children, abuses of church, abuses of country, abuses of military. It speaks to abuses, but it does not dismantle or condemn the institutions. And our first example was Abraham, right? First example was Abraham that he owned them and he was a righteous man. And he's never told, never commanded to do away with them, to uh, give them their freedom. He's never told that. In fact, he trusted his servant so much that he sent him to find a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24. And in Genesis 15, Eliezer of Damascus was his trusted slave. And since Abraham did not have a son... He was ready and willing to make this trusted, reliable, honest, good working or hard working slave his heir. Yeah. Legally to change this change it so that he would be the heir and carry on the name. So Abraham was the kind of master that we all should be. Now, Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians six. It says in 6.5, 6, 5 to 9, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In verse 5, slaves flee, uh, cause an uprising, mutiny, take, uh, take up your arms, insist. It doesn't say anything like that. If... It is an evil institution, then why would the Apostle Paul not speak against it categorically and directly? Right. 
categorically and directly. He doesn't. In fact, he tells the slaves to be obedient with fear and trembling, with sincerity, as to Christ, do the will of God. Don't practice eye service, lip service. Don't be pretenders and man-pleasers. Render service to the Lord, not to men. And know that you will receive a reward. A reward for being faithful. And then the masters are told not to abuse them. Don't exploit them. Don't take their position. Don't take their weakness. Don't take their lack of abilities in, in monetary ways as a way to exploit them. Don't do that. Treat them properly, it says. We can find the same in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. 6 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Now, the slaves are supposed to obey their masters, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor because of the name of God and our doctrine, lest it be maligned, lest the doctrine and the name of God be maligned. And then verse 2, let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more. That is, a slave might say, well, my master's a believer, and you know, it's all about grace, all about love and mercy, and he shouldn't expect too much out of me, so I can be lazy, I can do this and I can do that, I can dishonor him, I can take some of his possessions, steal some of it, I can do those kinds of things, because he's a believer. No, Paul says, because he's a believer, a brother, serve him all the more. You have a unique and new relationship in Christ. You're supposed to be honest with each other. You're supposed to be diligent with each other. You're supposed to love one another. Because he's a believer. If, because the master is a believer. So this, that's what the scripture says. Abuse in the institution is the real issue, whether that is happening or not. But no one can prove, no one can prove from the Bible, and even the commentators who don't like slavery are unable to prove it from the Bible, and they state so, that the Bible nowhere explicitly, categorically rejects slavery. It does not. In fact, it does the opposite. It maintains it in its proper form. Just like it maintains marriage, just like it maintains family, just like it maintains military, just like it maintains government. Yes? I was going to say, uh, so in light of that, the, you know, the SBC social justice warriors who are all about apologizing for the Southern Baptist Convention's past, you said Abraham was a righteous man, had slaves, but you know, they act like those founders of the SBC were 
evil because they had slaves. Now we need to apologize to, for them. But by Bible standards, they 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 were right. They could very well have been righteous men and still had slaves. Yes, if there were righteous men with slaves treating them righteously, fairly, kindly, then fine. If we're talking about the SBC or any Christian denominations, if that's what's happening, then, then that's fine. It's not a sin. But the problem is that the educational system, the media, entertainment, government, politicians, and pastors in seminaries, there's been a bombardment for at least... 100 years, if not 150 years in the United States to condemn slavery in every form. That you cannot condone it in any form. That's what has been happening for 150 to 175 years here in the U.S. And yet, those same people are the biggest hypocrites in the world because they promote that form of government that enslaves people. The government itself will enslave them if everyone has to pay 90% of his income to the government for the government to dictate to the individual everything that should be done. Is that not slavery? Right? You, you can't eat your food. You can't drink your clothes. You can't go to the doctor. You can't own a car. You can't do this. You can't do that unless you have their approval. And eventually they want to get rid of cars and airplanes and everything else. Right? That's socialism. That's socialism. Socialism, progressivism, liberalism, communism, Marxism, Stalinism, Maoism. It's got different names, but it's all basically the same. Enslave the people. Enslave the people in the name of helping them out of slavery, in the name of helping parents and children and mothers and women and babies, in the name of helping them, you actually harm them and destroy them. That's what it really is. And that's what's been going on in the U.S. Jerry? Um, you mentioned, what, what's the time difference uh, between, uh, about what time was Ishmael born and living in the gap between him and the founding of Islam. Islam the founding of Islam. Yeah. So let's just say roughly 2000 BC for, th for the time of Abraham to Islam, which is 8600. So that's 2600 years. So 2600 years from the founding of this ethnic people mm -hmm. to the founding of this religion that yeah. had prominence among those people. Yes. Yes. And so then the only connection between the two would be both were founded by wild donkeys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Okay, number... Okay, next question. That, actually, Jerry, that's what I was going to ask. Okay. <laughs> that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we're thinking like this. No, 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 I hope we are. <laughs> I hope we are. Okay, anyone else? Well, just uh, another thing I was thinking about, it's more just an observation. You had mentioned how God blessed uh, Hagar and Ishmael with these things, you know, and that if God will do that for an unbeliever, then how much more will he bless his children and give us salvation mm -hmm. and eternal life? 
So yeah. even this example of how God treats them kindly should give us greater faith in the Lord that if he's given to us faith and the beginning of our salvation, he's going to give it, give us the outcome. We give shouldn't it. doubt him or have trepidation or fear or anything. We know that he'll give us the outcome. Amen. Yes, yes. And this outcome is what is often called hope. What the Bible calls hope. That outcome is not only physical and material, but it is spiritual and eternal. The eternal hope is much better. That's why it says, Consider it all, James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12. James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. To those who love him, this promise. That's what we've got. Yes? Could you comment on the question of polygamy here in Genesis 16? On polygamy, Yes. This is another case where the text of Genesis, it does not in chapter 16 and even in chapter 25. In chapter 25, if you notice at the beginning, it mentions that Abraham had uh, another wife named Keturah. 25.1. Now, Abram took another wife whose name was Keturah. And her, her sons are different than the others from Hagar. So we're not talking about Hagar, we're talking about Keturah. Keturah is not another name for Sarah, not another name for Hagar, but another wife, it says in 25 verse 1, whose name was Keturah. At what point, we don't know, but it's likely with the number of descendants and the number of descendants and the lifespan of each of them, patriarchs and matriarchs, that there was some overlap, there had to be overlap in years, so he had at least two or three at some point in his life, Abraham did. How do I handle polygamy? I think that there are certain cases in the Bible when exceptions are made, and these exceptions are not to be repeated I say that about polygamy because we do know from Genesis 1 and 2 that God made the male and female. The man shall, not, uh, shall, shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The two and they shall become one flesh. So that institution was started in Genesis 1 and 2 and repeated by Christ in Matthew 19, 1 to 12. So there's no doubt about the standard and the norm, the practice that should be prevalent in all societies. But I think he made an exception with these patriarchs, some of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Firstly, in terms of percentage. If you think about from 4000 BC, that's when Adam lived, from 4000 BC till the end of the Old Testament, which is about 400 BC, we've got about 3,600 years. In that period of time, though we don't have all the historical events and all the marriages recorded, people think that polygamy was practiced all over the place and by everybody. So much so 
that um, they say it's all over the Bible. Well, there are maybe about two dozen examples, two dozen examples in 3,600 years of history there. Two dozen. And it's not all of them who did it. For example, Isaac and Rebekah were just Isaac and Rebekah. Um, that's a point of clarification. Then, why do I call it an exception? Think about Genesis chapter 22. God tested Abraham and told him to place Isaac on the altar and offer him there as a burnt offering. Correct? But he does not command all of us to do that. Right. And in fact, he says in the prophets that it never entered his mind. Though the people do it to pagan gods, it never entered God's mind for him to tell us to do that. But he did command Abraham to do it. We know Abraham was about to do it. Isaac did not die. That was spared. However, the command or the actions, the precursors to the action, whether in his mind or in his desire to obey, and as he was obeying and just before the knife came down, that would have been sin if it's a sin in every case. But it wasn't a sin in that case. Uh, further, you may recall that Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 20, he was told to walk about naked and barefoot for three years as a testimony or witness against the people as a sign that that's what would happen to them if they would not repent. And since they would not repent, that's what would happen to them. Isaiah chapter 20, the whole chapter, which is only six verses, it says, In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. The Lord said, Even as my servant Isaac has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So he is speaking of literal nakedness, not barely having any clothing, like just your undergarments or something. He's not speaking of that. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope in Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? Isaiah was to do that, but we all are not supposed to do that, right? Since Genesis, since Genesis chapter, chapters 2 and 3, when there was no sin, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But after sin comes in the world, we clothe ourselves. Right? We clothe ourselves. That's the standard or the norm. But the exception God made here with Isaiah. Another one is Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel 4. Ezekiel is also preaching, and here preaching to Judah, warning them of the kind of miseries that they will experience because of sin. And Ezekiel 4, 4 verse 9. But as for me, take, uh, excuse me, but as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, 
millet and spelt, put them in one vessel and make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. And your food which you eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight. You shall eat it from time to time. And the water you drink will be the sixth part of a hen of, by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. You shall eat it as barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Over human dung. Then the Lord said to me, Thus shall the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I shall banish them. But I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I have never been defiled, for from my youth until now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I shall give you cow's dung in place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread, so forth. So God commanded Ezekiel to eat it over human dung, which would have made his food impure, defiled, polluted, according to ritual pollution. It would have made it that way. And Ezekiel objects, Lord, I haven't done this. So God makes an exception because of Ezekiel's objection. But God did command it, even though that's not normally commanded, to eat it over human dung. Right? Okay, and another example... Hosea chapter 1. Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. Now, when, when you are a man or a woman, you want to marry um, somebody who's trustworthy, faithful, reliable, right? Uh, a man does not want to marry a prostitute, and a woman does not want to marry an adulterer, right? A serial adulterer. A woman doesn't want to do that, and a man doesn't. When they're thinking clearly, I know a few exceptions exist, but when people are thinking rightly, they don't want to do that. In Hosea's case, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, 1, 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. A whore. Yes, he, he commanded Hosea to marry a whore. A harlot, a prostitute. That's what he commanded Hosea when not, that's not supposed to happen usually. And why? To illustrate also the rebellion of the people and how they were unfaithful to the Lord. That's why. So, an exception. And I think that polygamy falls into that category. I cannot say that polygamy is a gross or heinous sin in their cases, because if it's the case, then how could they be said to be righteous? They would have to be described as practicing sin. Practicing sin. But those who practice sin are not born of God. Correct? Okay. Then, what is the commonality in all of these examples? The commonality is God's will is supreme. God's will is supreme. That is, God can give us laws to obey, but when He wants to make exceptions to them, He has every right right to do it, because His will is supreme. God is not bound by the laws that He gives us. We are bound to keep them, but He's not bound by them. His will is supreme. He has free will. 
We, we do not. Okay. Yes. Next. Well, one more, then we'll have to stop. Thank you for these explanations. Uh, so, if it, if it comes to pass that we are trying to explain this to others, and they say, but God is immutable, he changes not, how would we explain that? Yeah, God is immutable, he changes not. His morality remains, that's true. But he can make exceptions. When he says, you shall not murder, in the Ten Commandments, and this relates to his immutability and his morality, it says, you shall not murder in the Ten Commandments, but he commanded Abraham to, in a sense, murder Isaac. So, God, that's true, he is immutable, and his laws are like that, his moral law is immutable, but God's will supersedes the law. Yes. That's the answer. The answer is, God's will supersedes the law, suspends the law whenever he wishes to. Can, can we look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and uh, see if that gives a little bit of an answer to this situation? Deuteronomy 32? Um, yes. Okay. Deuteronomy 32 to answer this. And what's the verse? Okay. Deuteronomy 32, 1 to 5. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. They have acted corruptly toward Him, they are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Right. Now, what is there that relates to it? God is the ultimate judge of everything that we do. And he is always just and right. right. No matter what our society dictates and no matter what we deem right or wrong, mm -hmm. still God is the ultimate judge and he, he's the one that sees our our thoughts and our heart in the judgment of everything that we have to uh, answer for. Yes. God is the judge. He's the judge of heaven, the ultimate judge. Whatever he says goes. Right. But uh, I think the, you're wondering about the logic or the relationship between his immutability and these situations. And the answer is still the same. That is, the will of God supersedes whatever laws he gives whenever he so chooses. Yes, he's got that progress. Yeah, so he did not change the you shall not murder or the you shall not commit adultery commandment. He just made exceptions to them on occasion. But somebody cannot say no wicked individual can charge him with unrighteousness or with hypocrisy concerning his own no. commandments. No. no, they cannot charge him with hypocrisy or contradiction to his own standards because he can do what he wants with it. And the standard is still the standard. As it, applies, he, as it applies to us. As it applies to us, yes. It, and it's a standard that applies to us. And God desires us to obey that, and he can make exceptions whenever he wants, according to his will. Yes? God is God. God is God. Yeah. God is God. Okay. Now, um, we have to end... It's, uh, 
it's time to end. And I, rec- I would like to um, have one brother who's here for the first time, uh, Richard, pray for us to close. Um, he came to, he's 92, and he came to Christ when he was 72.